Woo. So is everybody happy, happy? How, how many Duck Dynasty fans have we got out there? Okay, a smattering. The rest of you maybe join the parade. Okay, it's a lot of good, good times and a lot of fun. We are, uh, I've been very, very excited about being a part of this series. Happy, happy, happy. Um, uh, now, part of it is just like out of my own sense of personal need. My football team took a beating yesterday. Brutal loss. I could use some extra happy, happy, happy to try and recover from that. And then this morning, I was so excited to be here. I was so excited to be together and to be talking about what it is that God might have in store for our sense of happiness. I was so excited that I forgot to eat breakfast. And I just say that in case like, I start babbling incoherently and, and then fall faint on the floor. You need to know what's happening. Someone run and grab me one of those pumpkin spice muffins and everything will be fine. But we'll just get that out of the way as well. This is going to be a really good series, because honestly, who doesn't want to be happy, right? Nobody. Everybody wants to be happy, so this should be great. But at the same time, it may also be possible that this could be a difficult series, because, come on, how many of us are really as happy as we feel like we deserve to be, right? We all have this picture in our mind of what happy would look like. It might involve like employment situation or your income. It might involve a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or someone you have a crush on or just a friend or any relationship that you want to, uh, you would like to be perfect or at least better. Happy for you might involve your health or your hobbies. Happy might involve the Seahawks going to the Super Bowl. It could be, yeah. And we want to be happy. And that's this picture that we have. But for many, Possibly even most reality actually show uh, reality actually comes up short of this picture that we have in our mind, and so I read I read a study this week. It was based on a scientific poll of thousands of Americans, and the result of this poll showed this: that as of May 2013, two thirds of Americans are, and I quote, not very happy. Two thirds. That's like two out of three. Right? So if you're happy today, odds are the person on either side of you is not. <laughs> the population of the United States now is up over 300 million. And that means that there are 200 million unhappy people wandering around. And this was before the government shut down, so I doubt it's gotten any better. <laughs> now this isn't going to be nearly as scientific, um, but I'd ask for a show of hands, how many of you would say, by raising your hands, that in general... You are happy with your life. That's fantastic. Do you know what that means? You can put them down now. That's way over the national average. We have just scientifically proven that attending Life Center North makes you more happy. (laughs) So I read this poll, and then it started kind of concerning me, and I worried, and I thought, well, maybe I'm one of those 200 million grumpy Americans. Maybe that's me. How happy am I? Am I? So I hopped online, and you know, you can take those different quizzes and surveys and assessments, and they're going to tell you how happy you are. And so I did that, and I answered all these questions about myself, and they told me that my happiness level was at an 88 out of 100. Yeah, it's like a solid B+. (laughs) But then my competitive instincts kicked in. (laughs) I know, can't help myself. I can do better than that. Surely I could muster up an A- minus of happiness out of this thing. So I went and found a couple other more sites and took another survey. And I got an 80. <laughs> a B-. minus, And that made me unhappy. <laughs> it was not okay. Are you kidding me? And then to add insult to injury, while I'm wallowing in my newly found unhappiness, 
a pop-up comes up on the screen and lets me know that if I'm unhappy in my marriage, there's a website that'll connect me to dozens of married women who are waiting just to have an affair with a married man like me. Yeah, that ought to fix it, right? And it occurred to me that there are a lot of truly, truly unhappy people out there and that many of them maybe have absolutely no idea where to turn to find the happiness that they're so desperately seeking. And the truth, I think, is this, that many of us have this lingering, kind of hovering, sort of foreboding sense that, man, if this is as good as it gets, I'm kind of disappointed. (laughs) If this is all there is, if this is all that I get, and this is as good as things get for me, it's just not quite that good. Surely, I was created for something better than this. I should be happier than I am. But I, I just don't know how to get there. I want you to watch this uh, short clip that we've got. And while you're watching it, ask yourself, how true does this ring for you? What's something everyone wants every day that can't be bought but can be found? And when you find it, you can lose it. But if you share it, you get more of it. The answer? Happiness. And everyone has a formula for finding it. A lot of people say, me plus job plus a house plus a family equals happy. It's the classic American dream. But for a teenager, the formula's more simple. Me plus a car equals happy. Then there's the nature lover formula. Me plus a backpack minus civilization equals happy. The sports fan says, me plus my team plus the number one draft pick equals happy. And for the millionaire, it's me plus money plus even more money equals happy. The problem with these formulas is that other stuff messes with the equation. The millionaire meets a billionaire. Oh, yeah. The sports fan starts losing. The nature lover runs into a mother bear and her cubs. The teenager's formula gets way more complicated. And lately, the American dream hasn't been so dreamy. People have lost jobs and lost homes. Families are crumbling under the strain, and more people than ever are wondering, is there some other formula out there that can make me happy again? There is, but you won't find it out there. You'll find it in here. Isn't that right? Yeah, now it occurs to me that in a video like that, they should just say, there's no formulas out there, but there are formulas in here, and here it is. Here's the secret formula. Are you ready for it? Boy, are you going to be disappointed with me today. (laughs) You are. Because one, there's no simple secret formula. And two, if there was, I certainly wouldn't give it to you on week one of a multi-week series. (laughs) But I can give you a little hint. And it's this. Did you notice what all those inadequate happiness formulas had in common? They all started with me. Me. Me plus, me plus, me plus. And I suspect that one of the things that we're going to discover, not just today, but in the coming weeks of this series, is that putting me first in our thinking is not likely to produce the kind of happiness that we are looking for. And so where do we start in our exploration of what the Bible has to say on this topic of our happiness? I'd like to start with this idea, and it's this. I want you to know that God is not opposed to your happiness. And it doesn't feel to me like I should have to say that, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I have to address this idea that some, maybe even many people have, that God's main concern in life is to prevent anybody, anywhere, at any time, from having any fun 
or experiencing any happiness. I'm not sure exactly where it came from, but some people have this idea that God, G-O-D, stands for grumpy old dude. They picture him sitting up in heaven, just waiting for somebody here on earth to experience just the faintest little glimpse of happiness so that he can zap them with some lightning or some pestilence or some plague or something to get them past that and just knock the happiness right out of them. But that's not the case. It's not, in fact, the case at all. Listen, listen to the way that Jesus described what it was that God intended for people to experience. Jesus said this. He said, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and to have it abundantly. An abundant life. Lots of life. See, we forget sometimes that Jesus came not just to bring us eternal life in heaven, but also to make a way that we could experience abundant life here on earth. I don't know, maybe you've struggled and maybe you've held the mistaken view that God's plan, uh, God's plan is for everything to be great in heaven and until then, we just have to suck it up and quit whining while we're here on earth, right? And you can recognize the people that has this, have this view because they, they walk around this life looking like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Oh, bother. Guess I shouldn't experience any happiness in this life anyway. Guess I'll just wait to heaven and then I'll have some eternal life. That'd be nice. Thanks for dying for my sins. <laughs> Come on. Is that what Jesus described? Does that sound like abundant life to you? I mean, if we're going to go with abundant life, we've got to go with Tigger, right? Absolutely. I won't do my Tigger dance. I won't put you through that. Trust me. In this age of Facebook and Twitter and everything else, uh-uh. <laughs> happiness. Now, let's be clear. Happiness is not the only thing that God is interested in, right? God's very interested in our character. He's very interested in the way we conduct our lives and the things we do and the way we behave and the way that we treat others and we look out for others. He's very interested in all those things as well. But in the midst of all that, he's not opposed to our happiness. In fact, all of those other things that he's interested, obedience and care and compassion and conduct, all those things, he understands that those things are actually going to produce the happiness that we so often try and find some other way. See, God's picture of happiness is different than yours in all likelihood. What if, we, what if we just stopped and took some time and drew up the picture of what happiness looked like? What attributes would we come up with? People who are happy are, you know, fill in the blank. Maybe they're comfortable. Maybe they're healthy. People who are happy are, are privileged. People that are happy are young, or at least younger than I am, or beautiful, or at least more beautiful than I am. <laughs> or successful, or smart, or the list goes on and on and on of the attributes that we would say, that's what happy people are. But let's take a moment and compare our picture of happiness with God's picture. This is what, these are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as he began that. And he says over again, blessed, blessed, blessed. And blessed, blessed, and blessed just mean happy because God is in the act of blessing you. Jesus said, happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, Blessed and happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That has a little different feel, doesn't it, than the picture we would typically draw? Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they will find mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. Maybe those images aren't so different, but then he keeps on going. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Hold on. I don't associate persecution with happiness. Surely, one of two things is happening. Jesus is mistaken, or I am. Take your pick. (laughs) Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Man, that that picture is just way different than the picture that I would come up with left on my own. And that actually leads me to yet another conclusion. If God's picture of happiness is different than yours, then it shouldn't surprise you that God's pathway to happiness is different than yours as well. If when God paints a picture of happiness that looks different than yours, then it stands to reason then the way he will take you from where you are to there is different than the way that you would try and get there yourself. The prophet Isaiah was onto something really, really important. And he put it this way. He said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isn't it true that so often we figure that part of the reason, one of the reasons that God is so absolutely brilliant is that he agrees with me so often? Right? And we say, here are my thoughts, and, and surely God's thinking are right in line with my thinking. Here are my ways, and surely God's ways are right in alignment with my ways, right? But then Isaiah comes along, and he points out something so obvious that we say, yeah, I should have realized that before, that God's thoughts are not my thoughts. They are higher than mine. And that God's ways aren't just aligned with mine. They're far higher And there must inevitably come these times when the things that God thinks and the way that God goes about doing things are radically different from the way that I think and the way that I would, and that that's okay. And that my job isn't to get God's thoughts to come down to my thoughts or or somehow decline God's ways and bring them down to the level of my ways. But it's my job is to recognize the difference, to recognize the gap and say, God, I'm here and you're here. Would Would you help me get there? God, this is the way I would do it, and and you're asking me to do it this way. I can't get there from here, but will you help me? See, the difference between God's ways and our ways and God's thoughts and our thoughts is so vast that we can't get there by ourselves. If we could, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. Jesus wouldn't have had to die. Jesus wouldn't have had to pay the price to bridge the gap. But he did, and because he did, we can have what Scripture calls the mind of Christ given to us so that we can think God's thoughts after him. We can have the Spirit of God dwell in us so that our ways are gradually becoming less and less and we gradually are actually being defined by God's ways being lived out within us because his Spirit lives within us. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's thoughts are not, or God's ways are not naturally the way that we would do it. We have to recognize that. And where happiness comes uh, comes into play, we naturally think of it as I don't know. We tend to think of happiness as this thing that we're supposed to achieve, like kind of a a trophy or a prize for having arrived after a certain amount of accomplishment, that if I'm going to be happy in this life, I'm going to have to go after it, I'm going to go have to create it, I'm going to have to lay hold of it and never let go. As if if I can just do a good enough job kind of laying out all the 
all the game pieces on the game board of my life. If I can get, get all the pieces of my life exactly where they belong on the game board, then I'm going to be happy, right? And then just when we manage to do that, just when it seems like the job has come together and the family's doing okay and my mindset's good and my team's winning and all that, just when that happens, someone comes in like a little sister and just smacks the game board. Pieces fly in everywhere. And then goes, there goes happiness splattering off in a million directions. And there goes my happiness. Would it surprise you to know that God, with his infinite thoughts and in his infinite ways, has, has a different means for you and for me to actually experiencing any kind of real and lasting happiness than just arranging the pieces of our life in a certain order? Listen to this from the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. I love this idea. I love this idea that happiness is not a state or a condition or an accumulation of things that I achieve that happiness is a gift that God grants. He gives. And to whom does he give it? To the person who pleases him. To the person who pleases him, God gives happiness. That's what the passage says. He gives it to those who please him, and that means obedience. Uh Uh-oh. I love the idea of God giving me obedience, or giving me uh, happiness. You mean that's connected to my obedience? Like how many of us just naturally grin at the word obedience? Oh, parents of toddlers can dream about it and stuff. But when it comes to my obedience, we don't go, woohoo, someone gets to tell me what to do. I get to do someone else's bidding, not my own. Woohoo, sign me up. Generally, we don't associate obedience with happiness. But the scripture says, that if we will please God, and we please him by obeying, and if we will please God, he gives us the gift of happiness. Happiness is the starting point on God's pathway to happiness. It's obedience. How would you like... I sound like an infomercial. How would you like to expand your capacity for happiness? But would you? Would you like your happiness tank, your ability to experience happiness expand? then you need to learn to expand the scope of your obedience to God. Do you want to limit the scope of your happiness? Do you want to minimize and break down to the, to the least level the amount of happiness that you can experience? Then simply continue in a practice of limiting the scope of your obedience to God. That's pretty strong stuff. What else? In addition to obedience, what else is it that the Bible leads us to believe will bring about any kind of lasting happiness, the kind of happiness that God longs to give us and longs for us to experience? What, are, what is another, another thing that would lead us toward the abundant life that Jesus said he came to provide? I would say that whatever else may be out there, the ideas of trust and of faith are right up there as well. And again, this cuts right against the grain of the sense that I am responsible to pursue and to achieve and to maintain my own happiness. No, when we, when we talk about trust and we talk about faith, we say, no, I don't just achieve and maintain my happiness. I actually ha- hand that compartment of my life to the Lord and say, 
I need you to take care of that. You determine how much happiness I need. You determine how comfortable I will be. You determine how this is going to play out. That requires a lot of trust, and it requires a lot of faith. When David was writing, he he wrote this in his 37th Psalm. He said, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If the desire of your heart is happiness, not, not the momentary, passing, fleeting glimpses of happiness we get when things kind of go right for a short period of time, but the lasting, meaningful happiness that God has in store for us, that abundant life, if that's the desire of your heart and you want God to give that to you, we saw in Ecclesiastes that part of that is learning to please Him with obedience, but in addition it says this, take delight in the Lord. See, if we allow the focus of our attention to be the blessings that God says he wants to give us, and, and our attention, our focus, our effort, and everything is just dialed in towards those blessings, we're missing out on the blesser, on the author of those blessings, of the one who loves us. And we run ourselves ragged in a hopeless pursuit of attaining happiness by pursuing the blessings when God says, if you'll just delight yourself in me, if you will take your delight in your relationship with me, if you allow that to be the focus of your attention and in your pursuit, if you will give yourself to a life of pursuing God and taking delight in him, it's at that point that he gives you the desires of your heart. And at our best, most of the times we kind of bounce, and back, bounce back and forth between the two of those. But man, if, if, if happiness is something towards which we strive, if happiness is something that we're looking for, if we have that sense of I'm supposed to be happier uh, than I am, that I'm supposed to be one of the one-third, not the two-thirds, then part of what we're going to have to do is to learn to take our eyes off of the blessings and, and the dreams and say, Lord, I'm just going to take my delight in you. And we know, we absolutely know, that among the absolute killers of the experience of happiness are all the things that we worry about, right? Ask, ask someone, what are the things that are you, are you currently worried about? And, and just this long list of things comes flying out. And, uh, and Jesus had something very interesting to say. He had a take on those common, everyday types of things and needs that so constantly occupy our minds and keep us from experiencing the happiness that God has in store. Jesus said this. He said, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? And can I just add on in there, Where am I going to get a job? How are the kids going to get through school? Is this healthcare thing ever going to actually work out? I mean, whatever the question would be, don't worry about those things. Jesus says, For the pagans run after all these things. The pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father already knows that you need them. How about this? But seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness, and then all of these things will be given you as well. There's that word again, isn't it? Given. Do you ever get uncomfortable with the word given? 
I mean, actually, it's one of the hardest, it's one of the hardest things to accept about Christian faith and teaching is that my relationship with God, that my eternal destiny depends not on what I did and not on what I accomplished, not about the relative merits of my own performance, but that salvation is a gift that is what? Given. And everything in our, in our nature wants to say, well, that's not right, that's not fair. I mean, I can understand why you'd give it to me, but why would you give it to that guy? And we have to consciously fight off that ongoing sense in the back of our minds, no matter how much we've heard about grace, no matter how many times we've read through the New Testament, no matter how many messages we've heard, no matter how clear we are in our brain that salvation is a gift of grace that we don't deserve, we know that up here, but we've got to work hard to get it out of our heart because that goes against everything. There's really only one place in our existence where we're freely given such a fantastic gift, and that's in our relationship with God. But there it is. Seek first God's kingdom, seek first his righteousness, and then all of these things, they'll be given to you. Does that mean I can, like I don't have to strive and worry and stress? Yeah, that, that's exactly what he's talking about there. But, but let's not be unclear about this. Seeking first the kingdom of God, it's not just a means to an end. I want these things, so as my strategy, I'm going to seek God first. And then when he's not looking, I'll run over here and enjoy all these things that I'm really after in the first place. Right? I mean, sometimes we treat this idea of seeking God first kind of like we treat those free magazine subscription offers. Sign up for 97 magazines. If you cancel, you'll still get the prize. Oh, okay, I'll sign up for the magazines, and then when they're not looking, I'll cancel, and I'll get the free prize over here. Ooh, look at me getting away with stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you. All right, I'm going to seek first for as long as it takes, and then I can cancel and run over and just enjoy all the goodies. That, that's actually not how it works. That's not how it works at all. We, when we seek first the kingdom of God, when we look first to his righteousness, that is, we say, God, I am following you and none other. I am placing not just my immediate state and not just my eternal destiny, but everything in between as well in your hands. And while that's taking place, I am following you. It's a, it's a pre-commitment to say, God, I'm going to follow you and I will receive whatever comes as a gift from your hand. And some of those gifts I will love and enjoy, and others will be really difficult, right? Many of us sit here. Have you ever, uh, how many of you have been the recipient of, a, of the gift of a really painful life lesson that I taught early, right? Yeah. I'm wrestling with this a little bit in my own life. You know, um, our son just went off to college. So he's over there, and he's, he's in Seattle. And as a dad, it's really hard for me not to like, try to remind him about everything. Did you do this? Did you do that? Did you take care of this, that, and the other? Because for some reason, I had this illusion that he's going he's gonna to learn something, that he can learn things uh, without experiencing them. You know how, you know how adults um, learned the lesson to take care of priorities first and then let other things go their way? It's because when they were away on their own and young, they didn't, and they paid the price. And that price drummed it into us, right? 
oh, I'm not going to do that again. Some of the gifts that God gives us, they're difficult. Some of us right now are walking through really painful experiences, and those painful experiences are getting in the way of us being happy. But do you realize that they are God's gift to you? That if, you, that if we are committing ourselves to seeking God first and his kingdom and his righteousness, right? Which says, right here and right now and into eternity and everything in between, I'm going to receive everything that happens as a gift from God's hand. Then even this difficult thing that's happening right now is God's gift to me. And he's going to use it to grow something in me that can overcome that, that can work through that, and then can help somebody through it later on when they're experiencing the very same thing. We are going to take a closer look at some specific areas of happiness throughout the rest of this series. We're going to talk about some happiness in relationship and with a number of different issues. And I want to encourage you to keep coming back. I'm excited because I think better than just kind of some cheap artificial formula for how to produce what we think happiness looks like, what we're going to find is that there's a God who wants to walk us into a wealth of abundant life happiness that we could never achieve any other way. So let's keep coming back for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for your love and for your grace. God, it's because of your love and your grace that you care at all about us having some of that abundant life. And so, God, I just, I mostly, I want to intercede uh, for us over the course of the rest of this series. God, would you make us ready to, uh, to receive the gift of abundant life and to be able to encounter and hang on to some of that abundant life happiness that you came to give. And God, to the extent that there are things that are already standing in the way of it, maybe it's disobedience, maybe it's a lack of trust, maybe it's a lack of faith. God, to the extent that that's true, uh, God, we want to ask that you would show that to us in the open places of our heart so that we can yield those over to you and say, God, I'm giving that to you. Would you forgive me and help me to move on? God, we want to be happy, happy, happy not in a way that's just selfish and self-oriented, but in a way that reflects your love and goodness to a world that's watching so that they can encounter it as well. And to that end, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.